The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information about Jason can be found at deroshi-meyer.org. After I finished seminary, there were two books in the Old Testament that I didn't know what to do with. And one of them was Ecclesiastes. It is a peculiar book. If we follow the ESV, all is vanity, everything is vanity. If we follow the NIV, everything is meaningless. And that doesn't quite sound right to me. So some have proposed, everything's meaningless unless you have God. And then everything gains meaning. Is that how we're supposed to read the book, though? It's a very tough book. Here is a liberal, non-believer, what he says about Ecclesiastes. Life is profitless, totally absurd. This oppressive message lies at the heart of the Bible's strangest book. Enjoy life if you can, advises the author, for old age will soon overtake you, and even as you enjoy, know this, that the world is meaningless. Virtue does not bring reward. The deity stands distant, abandoning humanity to chance and death. These views contrast, contrast radically with earlier teachings expressed in the book of Proverbs. So this scholar has no problem finding in this one book contradictory messages that stand at odds with one another. And so he even calls calls Ecclesiastes wisdom in revolt. Now, he's not the only one who has such views. In fact, there's a number of conservative evangelicals, like Kevin DeYoung. How many have heard sermons from Kevin DeYoung, pastor of Reformed Presbyterian Church in Lansing, Michigan? He preached seven sermons on Ecclesiastes, and he preached the book as if there's two voices in the book that are at odds with one another. There's the frame, the voice of the frame narrator, who doesn't want us to believe what Ecclesiastes is teaching. So he views the uh, 11 and a half chapters where the preacher is talking as more like the words of Job's friends than the words of Job. So that as we're reading through this book, when we get to the book of Ecclesiastes, we're supposed to pause and actually hear what we're not supposed to think rather than what we're supposed to think. Here's Kevin DeYoung. The preacher, he is searching confused, contradictory, cynical, and his conclusion is very clear. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Life under the sun is purposeless, meaningless, empty, and pointless. Koheleth, that's the Hebrew word that's been rendered preacher, Koheleth is a tricky figure to understand. Here is someone who is just, frankly, confused. He gets some stuff right, and he also gets some stuff wrong. He has strengths and weaknesses, good at seeing through the superficialities of life, good at seeing the vanity and contradictions of our existence, but bad at finding meaning and redemption. Now, in the book of Job, there's a signal to us. Job was blameless and upright before God. The narrator tells us that up front. Then God affirms it in the presence of Satan. Job is a blameless man, upright before me. So we're set up then when Job has his intense trials in life and the three friends come in and say, this is happening because you're a sinner. Already in Job chapter 2, God told Satan, I already took Job's stuff and his children away for no reason. So we as a reader are set up already from the very beginning of the book to know when we hear Job's friends saying, this happened because you're a sinner, we know already we're not supposed to listen to Job's friends. 
But there's nothing like that in the book of Ecclesiastes. No signal that jumps off the page. Instead, what we read at the beginning of the book is simply this. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. He just begins to talk, and there's no signal jumping off the page telling you and I, the reader, don't listen to this guy. Now turn to the back of the book, chapter 12. You'll see there's a frame. There's a voice that, it could be the preacher, but... It talks about the preacher as if the one who put the book together wasn't the preacher himself. So the preacher talks, Vanity of vanity, verse 8 of chapter 12. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. And then someone appears to be talking about him. And this is the epilogue or the frame narrator who's telling us about the preacher. What does he say? It doesn't appear to me that he's negative on the preacher. Instead, he appears to be affirming of the preacher. Listen to his words. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. It sounds like he's saying, this preacher was Solomon. I'll talk about that a little bit later. The preacher sought to find words of delight. And uprightly, he wrote words of truth. That seems to me to be an affirmation. When he was writing, he wrote words of truth. He wrote uprightly. He keeps speaking. The words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed to the collected sayings. So a goad is in the hand of a shepherd, a little stick that guides the sheep in the right path. If you've got a bad view of the book, you take that goad imagery and think that he's whipping the sheep and it hurts them. The words of the wise, like the words that we get from the preacher, they hurt us. In fact, they're like nails that just jab us in the soul. Or, you could view them, I think, the way that he intends us to view them. The words of the wise, like the ones we've just heard, are here to guide us on the right path. And not only that, they fix us firmly planted so that we will be unswerving when all the trials of life come. That's what a nail does. It sets us firm so that we don't wobble. And then notice where the words of the wise come from. The words of the wise, like those you just heard, come from one shepherd. Hear, O Israel... Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. And I think it's echoing that. And that's why the ESV translators and all of the English translators have capitalized one shepherd. Do you see that? One shepherd, capital S. And that's because they're saying this is God. He's the one from whom wisdom comes. Like the wisdom that the author of Ecclesiastes just gave us. Then he says, My son, be aware of anything beyond these. That is, the preacher has set the limits of the road. And don't go to the right, don't go to the left. Anything beyond these, don't go there. Again, I think he's affirming the words that have just been preached. Not viewing him as a fatalist. Not viewing him as a... unorthodox pessimist, but rather somehow having a view of the preacher that says he's a realist. He's even a godly wise man. Listen to him, because what he says has come from God, if you can get your hands around it. Of, many, of the making of many books there is no end, and of much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Let me summarize the point of this book. I think that's what he's saying. Fear God and keep His commandments. 
For this is the whole duty of man. And as you live your life in this world, know this, God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. That's how big our God is. Nothing kept from Him. All the closets of our lives that are shut right now that we don't want anybody to look at, God already knows. Every good, every bad, and in the end, He will judge us in accordance with everything. Those things that were opened and those things that were shut. All the wisdom comes from God. So, so I'm, I'm taking... This book is tough. I'm going to say that right off the bat. It's a tough book. And part of the challenge is that there is a key refrain where ever since the days of Jerome, early church father who rendered the Latin Vulgate, that became the standard Bible of the Roman church, And then William Tyndale gave us our first English translation. And what Jerome rendered, vanitas of vanitas, all is vanitas, William Tyndale rendered in English as vanity. The word that frames this whole book, the key word is hevel. Hevel. And a word that I never pronounce very well, anamana poetic, where the sound of the word actually expresses its meaning. Anamanapia, hevel. The word means breath, vapor, a wisp of air. And so in different contexts, it could mean different things. So we've got to get our hands around What does it mean that everything is a wisp of air? That everything in life is a breath? And there's been a number of different proposals. But before I jump there, so so I think, in contrast to some, but in alignment with many, that this book is not the words of a fatalist or a pessimist, but it's the words of a realist. The words of someone who, like most of us in this room, have already tasted the curseness of this world, and that makes it broken. Indeed, we could say of everything in this world, if we pause and really wrestle with it, we cannot get our hands around it. Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments. How inscrutable are His ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been His counselor? Who's given a gift to Him that He should be repaid? That is how big and how massive our God is. And to us, when we begin to try to consider, we can describe things, but we can't ultimately explain things. You can describe gravity. You can get down to the inner workings of it, but why does it actually work, God? You can describe how we're able to see with our eyes. A scientist can unpack it and get to the core of it, but why does it actually work that way? God. It's either random and chance or it's God. And the way that things are working out, those are the positive, easier things to consider why we can't get our hands around them. But when we consider, why was this child born with Down syndrome and not this one? Why did the two families that we crossed at a stoplight, they probably ran into each other a minute and a half before we got to the stoplight this morning? Why was it them and not us? I don't know. This is a book that wrestles with 
As a man, I believe, grown. A man, namely Solomon, who we know started well, went bad, and I believe, in light of this book and in light of the fact that Proverbs includes all of his own words, he's a man who truly was redeemed and who was restored to God. Here's the words of an older man and his, his Hebrew word is koheleth. The Greek word is ecclesiastes, translated into Latin that way. And it's, in our New Testaments, we see it all the time, ecclesia. It's our word for church, gathered community. And this is someone who gathers people. Kahal is the Hebrew word for, want, for to gather. So he's a gatherer, probably specifically in order to bestow wisdom. And so New King, I mean King James, New American Standard ESV, rendered him as the preacher. NIV, NRSV, HCSB rendered him as the teacher. He's the gatherer in order to bestow wisdom. And he's got the main voice in the book. And then there's this frame narrator. And I think that the frame narrator is not one who's saying, don't listen to him, but rather one who's saying, believers, get your hands around what he had to say. If you can grasp it, it will help you in this broken world, because this world is very broken, and he recognizes it. In fact, he's going to encourage people, take every opportunity you can to eat, to drink, to enjoy the girl of your youth, because most likely tomorrow everything's going to grow dark. Our life is going to be overpowered by the darkness. And you need to recognize that. You need to be ready for it. How will you respond when all hell breaks loose in your life? This is a book that's designed to help give clarity to that kind of world, a world like you and I really live in, where jobs are lost and children get sick, where children rebel, and where relationships get on the rocks. All of those elements are covered in this book. It's a realistic perspective on life, but not one from an unbelieving perspective, a realistic perspective from a believing perspective. So we're going to look at this, and I'm going to do my best to let you see it. This book appears to have a clear pattern. It opens up by the declaration, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. And then it ends, so somebody other than the preacher appears to be talking... And then it ends talking about the preacher again. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge. Chapter 12, verse 9. Now the very next word on each of the frame that is given is this statement, this indicative, and it's the motto of the book. All is Hebrew word, hevel. It's actually the exact same word for Abel's name. Abel's name is hevel. And Many people, I think rightly so, that Abel was named what he was in the predictive work of God to give an example of what life is often like. He was here and he was gone. What was the point of his life? Why did his life end like it did with a brother coming and murdering him? Why? This is a commentary, the book of Ecclesiastes is a commentary on life outside the garden. The word that... It, that the preacher's going to use is, the phrase is, under the sun. Life under the sun is life outside the garden, the world where you and I experience the brokenness every day of our lives. All is hevel, and then just before the, the narrator begins to talk again, down here, the preacher says, all is hevel. 12.8, everything is hevel, or vanity, as the ESV has it. And one, two, all is hevel. And then in both sections, what's next is a poem. And then in the middle, the main body of the book, 
This preacher is raising a bunch of questions and then making conclusions that we can't find all the answers. And then the, what's at stake is when you and I read his questions, we can relate to those. When we recognize his frustration in not being able to find the answers, we can, we can relate to that. And then we say, well, what do we do? Where do we go? The end of the matter, all has been heard, fear God and keep his commandments. Let's walk through this a little bit. So, I really wrestled to know what I was going to do. But when I, as a teacher, am going to suggest a translation other than the main one that you guys have in front of you for Hevel, and when Hevel shows up 38 times in this book, and it frames the entire book and says, everything is this, that means I need to pause and, and take some time to do a word study. So that's what we're going to do. doesn't sound thrilling, but I hope that it will end with you having some, a better ability to understand why these words show up in this book. First main, first some things that I've already mentioned. 38 times in the book, main meaning is a breath, a vapor. So in what way is it a vapor? Does it mean that there's really nothing there? It's meaningless, empty, futile, purposeless. That's one possibility. And that's how it was taken by Jerome and then William Tyndale just adopted it. And that's why all of our English translations are going to follow meaningless. But then others have said absurd. That's what it means. Everything is just absurd. It's counter-rational. It doesn't, it, it goes against reason. Both of those offer a very negative view of this book, at least of the main preacher. Everything is pointless, meaningless, or everything is senseless. But then there's other options fleeting. Everything in this world is simply brief. Don't get bogged down on anything bad because it's going to change tomorrow as is the good. It's going to change tomorrow. And then finally, enigma. Mysterious. Frustratingly difficult to get our heads around. Now, this word shows up 38 times in the book, and then it occurs in these two refrains that shape the outsides of the book. And what that suggests to me is that Every one of the 38 instances should be translated the same way. If everything is hevel, you can't have, well, this hevel is meaningless, but this hevel is brief or transient. Rather, all of them together have to be rendered the same way. So we need a meaning that can fit every context. And I'm going to propose that meaningless, absurd, and temporary cannot fit every context but difficult to understand, still having meaning, but having a meaning that I can't fully get my hands around and therefore life is massively frustrating, I think that will fit every context. Enigma. In what way is it breath? It's either empty, empty in the sense of meaningless, pointless, purposeless, or absurd, it has no sense. It's, it's absent of sense. That's why it's like breath or air. Fleeting, like a wisp of wind across your face. It was here, and then it's gone. Or, mysterious or enigmatic, meaning that there's no essence to it. It's, I'm trying to get my hands around it, and there's nothing to grasp. And so conservatives, like us, have offered all four different possibilities for trying to understand what this is about. But believe me, if you, depending on which of those four meanings you give, everything is this, it's going to change your idea of what this book is about. If you say everything is meaningless, then it's going to force you into a box that makes you say, everything's meaningless unless. Unless you have God. Or you're just going to say, 
This preacher, he's got bad theology like Job's friends, and we're not supposed to listen to him. And that's the view that Kevin DeYoung took when he preached through the book. And I love Kevin, but I think he missed it. That's what I'm going to propose. And each of you have your Bibles open, and you're going to have to evaluate whether my proposal fits. Types of things that show up as hevel, as air in this book. Well, toil and all of its products are hevel. So, chapter 2, verse 11. Then I considered all that my hands had done and all the toil that I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was ESV vanity, empty, pointless, or all was hevel. And I'm going to argue everything, everything had an element that I couldn't get my hands around, both the good and the bad. All of it. Toil. I work, 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 only to have me die and not take it with me to beyond. So why am I working so hard? This doesn't make sense. I think that's what he's saying. Pleasure, chapter 2, verse 1. I said in my heart, come now, I will test, with ple- test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, all was hevel. So I'm delighting in everything, as much as I can, and yet... In the end, it was either empty and pointless, it was fleeting, pleasure was counterintuitive, or pleasure ultimately resulted even in some frustration because I recognized that nothing on earth could ultimately satisfy. Wisdom and growing wise is hevel. Words are hevel. But not only human behavior, human beings themselves and all the times of our lives are hevel. Chapter 3, 18 and 19. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man, that's you and me, that God, who is not us, he's above, controlling all things, God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beast, for all is hevel. Now, either he's saying that there's no difference between man and beast in every way, or he's saying it is absolutely frustrating that just like my dog died, so too I as a human will die. Why did God make a world where that which is the crown of all creation still has the same end as everything else? And as the wisest man on earth is wrestling with this, he says, ultimately, I can't get my hands around why God's doing what he's doing. Divine behavior is also hevel. Let's consider how God works out his world. Chapter 2, verse 15. I said in my heart, what happens to the fool happens to me. Also, then, have I been, why have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart, this also is Hevel. 2.26 For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he's given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is hevel and a striving after wind. So what's strange here is that it's not just the bad things that don't make sense. Both the fool and the upright have the same end. That's hevel. That doesn't make sense that both the foolish and the upright end up going to the grave. But what's also, so that, that's the, what we would call the problem of evil in this world. But what is also difficult to grasp is the problem of God's goodness. Verse 26 says, For the one who pleases him, 
God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he's given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. It's both of these pairs that God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy to the upright, but to the sinner he gives this business of gathering and collecting only to have their means passed on to those that are good. This happens sometimes. And he says, both of them are hevel. He's struggling even with the good things in life, not just the bad things in life. It's not meaningless to say God has blessed the upright. I wouldn't even say it's counterintuitive. Absurd. But if I know my innate sinfulness and I recognize that God is blessing me even though I'm a sinner, saved by grace then I can recognize why life doesn't make sense, even the problem of God's goodness. So it's human behavior, it's living beings, it's divine behavior. All of this is called hevel. So could meaningless be it? Two conservatives. Longman isn't as much of a conservative, but he calls himself that. Derek Kidner, Tremper Longman... They go for, this is a book that is actually to be read very carefully because the words of Koheleth, the preacher, are bad theology. And they say, Job's three friends, their words are in our Bible, and the preacher's words are in our Bible, and, and so we have words that we're not supposed to listen to in our scripture. But I, and, and then they would point to texts like this. I already mentioned Here's where all of our English translations go. Vanity, futility, meaningless, pointless, no purpose. And they're all, though, building off of Jerome's rendering vanitas and William Tyndale simply rendering it as vanity, emptiness, pointlessness. So look at chapter 2, verse 1. Here's a text that they might go to to say, look it, hevel means meaningless or emptiness. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself. But it didn't result in anything. Your pleasure was empty, they will say. Pointless, fruitless. Why? Because it ended. Or 2 verse 11. Then I considered all that my hands had done and all the toil that I had expended in doing it. I'm working, 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 getting higher and higher up, and behold, everything was vanity, striving after wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. In this life, I can acquire, I can acquire, but ultimately, is it real gain? No. And they'll say, this is about a meaningless, pointless world. A parallel negative view is this absurdity idea. All things in this world are counter-rational or a violation of reason. And my dear friend Dwayne Garrett wrote an excellent commentary on Ecclesiastes. He's prophet Southern Seminary, and he argued for this view. Everything in this world is absurd. Let me critique this. Number one. This meaning does show up outside of Ecclesiastes, but inside Ecclesiastes, we don't find any of the words that accompany it outside. So if you think about everything is hevel, that is empty, meaningless, pointless, and then a parallelism comes, and in the second line it would say, that is, everything is nothing. But we don't find that word nothing any, any place in our book. The parallel words that are found like in the Psalter or in the book of Proverbs, when the word hevel means empty, pointless, purposeless, meaningless, none of those parallel words show up in Ecclesiastes. Nothing, naught, empty, idle, worthless, emptiness, worthless, without result, nothingness. None of those words show up ever in relation to this word. And then we come to this. If everything is meaningless... Why is it that the preacher can actually say that some things are better than other things? Can you have something that is more meaningless than something else? 
Just empty it of everything. It has no meaning. But this, is, this has more empty meaning than that does, and it doesn't make sense to me. Or there's absolutely no purpose in this, but there's more less purpose in this than there is in this. Let's look at a few of these. And this, is, this is why, what I'm saying is this is why I don't think this is the right meaning for this word. Chapter 3, 22. So I saw that there is nothing better than a, that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? You don't know what's going to come. So take the opportunity you have. In fact, there's nothing better than actually to find joy and delight in what God, where God has placed you. There's nothing better than that. Does that mean there is, there is a goodness in that? Well, if there's a goodness, that means there's not a meaninglessness. Let's look at another. Chapter 4, verse 9. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. Having one is meaningless. Having two is better than meaningless. No, that doesn't make sense to me. Having two people working side by side, there's going to be more fruitfulness that's going to come from this. That's better than just working on your own. But if everything is meaningless or pointless or purposeless, how can you have something better than something else? I don't think that's what he's getting at. Chapter 5, verse 1, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. When you come to have an encounter with God, simply putting a coin in the offering plate, that is so little of value compared to actually coming to hear from your God. To listen to have your ears attuned, to hear His voice, and to have it quicken your soul, that's better than offering a sacrifice of fools. There are things that are better, and because there's things that are better than other things, it's wrong for us to think that He's teaching everything is pointless or everything is empty, meaningless. How's this one? If I'm saying everything that I say is irrational, or everything in this world is irrational, or everything in this world has no meaning, then what does that make my words? It makes my words have no meaning. But he's expecting to be heard, expecting to be listened to. But if everything in this world has no meaning, or if everything in this world has no purpose, then he's just talking randomly. And yet I shouldn't listen to anything that he has to say. And yet he expects me to. In fact, he's pleading for me to listen to him. This is not a book about meaninglessness or absurdity. In fact, he affirmed deep meaning in life. He wrestled in his soul because he felt pain. Words that he uses regularly. There is evil trouble in this world. There's a grievous evil There is a great evil. This is an unhappy business, this world you and I are a part of. And anyone who has those convictions about life doesn't have a view that everything is pointless or meaningless. No, he has a standard upon which to weigh value. He's not down on this world. He's grieving over this world. Because he feels this is not how it was supposed to be. This world is crooked, twisted. Not pointless, not empty. No, it's filled with point, filled with meaning. There's a problem in this world, and he believes it. How about this one? Fleeting or temporary? Brief. There's no question the preacher is concerned about time. Chapter 2, verse 15. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me. Why then have you been so very wise, I ask myself. And I said in my heart, oh, this also is Hevel. Now, maybe he's trying to comfort himself. The fool's going to end in death, I'm going to end in death, but just know, this is fleeting. This is temporary. This is brief. Just let it pass by. And Frederick's, Daniel Frederick's has argued that that's what this means. 
Chapter 3, verse 19. Notice what it follows, that long poem that we're familiar with. For everyone there is a time, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up. There's time, lots of it. But it passes, and we move from one thing to the next, and it's always switching. And the wise man will discern what the right time is for each various activity. So then we come to 3.19. What happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts. But believe me, this is brief. This doesn't last long. This advantage of this, this equality between beast and man. Well, maybe that's, that's the idea. Chapter 6, verse 12. For who knows what is good for a man while he lives the few days of his vain, sorry, temporary, fleeting, brief life? Who knows? The few days of his fleeting life. So they look at these texts and they say, okay, this makes sense. This word should mean fleeting. Two weaknesses. Number one, when he's talking about the repetitive nature of this world, born, dead, love, hate, The cycle just continues from the beginning of time until the end of time. But he does so in a way that we don't know the beginning from the end. All this cyclical nature of life, the repetitive nature of life, his point in talking about time is not to say that everything is brief, but rather to stress how life's temporal nature, sorry, He stresses the temporariness of things and the repetitive nature of things in order to stress why this doesn't all make sense. Look at how he talks. God's made everything beautiful in its time. He's put eternity into man's heart. Everything beautiful, and yet we don't appreciate it. He's put eternity into man's heart, yet he's done so in a way that man cannot find out what God has done from beginning to end. I don't get it. He gives me a capacity to know greatness, and yet I can't understand what God is doing from beginning to end. And that's what, why he brings up the time issue. To say all these cycles, we don't grasp them, we don't even anticipate the cycles. I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that God has done under the sun. However much man can toil in seeking, he won't find it out. And this is the biggie. For the preacher, when he says, he he has this view of life's problems that doesn't say life's problems are short, as if we're supposed to gain encouragement from that. No, he feels they're excessively long and they're excessively burdensome. This is realistic. At one level, yes, life is short and I live for glory. And we're going to talk about that next week, his vision of glory and it's beautiful. But he also does not downplay your and my pain. He has real empathy for all that we're carrying. Listen to how he talks. The preacher says of the workaholic, there is no end to his toil. That's the opposite of brief. He's working over and over, excessively, excessively, just trying to get up the ladder. No end to his toil. His eyes are never satisfied with riches. I want more, I want more, I want more. So that he never asks, for whom am I toiling? He doesn't pause to actually think, what profit is there in all that I'm doing? And what am I losing in the process? The leaving of one's wealth to another who never worked for it is not simply hevel, but he calls it great evil that leads to a lifetime of sorrow and vexation, despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Why does he have sorrow? Why does he have vexation and despair if he's truly convinced it's all so brief? But he doesn't. Instead, he's eaten up inside because he feels the pain that you and I feel day in and day out. 
the struggle with relationships, the struggle with health issues, the struggle with finances. He feels it and he recognizes it doesn't feel short. In fact, it feels excessively burdensome and long so that my soul gets sorrowful, filled with pain. This is a man who understands real life. Graham Ogden, Ardell Kennedy, Robert McCain, and one other guy. (laughs) Ecclesiastes 11. Look at this verse with me. Light is sweet. This is not meaningless or absurd. It's sweet. Light is sweet, and it's pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. Did you feel that this last week? It's sweet to open up the shade in the morning and just have, bam, the light just hit me. It's not meaningless. It's not purposeless. No, it's designed to raise the affections of my soul to actually make me discern there is a bitterness and there is a sweetness. And to see the sun after days and days of clouds is sweet. So if a person lives many years, that's far from brief. Let him rejoice in them all. This isn't a person who is counting everything as pointless and absurd. He's not a fatalist, thinking everything is going downhill. But he recognizes in reality that we live many years. Rejoice in them all, but let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is heaven. And trying to put our hands around a world where God calls us to great joy. To delight in all of his gifts. And yet to recognize that this world will not all be happy. In fact, it will have much darkness. That's what he's wanting us to get our hands around. This is a book that in my own seasons of suffering has meant much to me. Because it's helped remind me to get my feet firmly planted on where I need to be and how I need to be thinking. Hevel means nothing in the universe, this side of eternity, is fully understandable, whether good or bad. I applied my heart to no wisdom, to no madness and folly. I just committed myself to gain an understanding of the right and of the wrong. I perceive that this also was a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Do you see that phrase, striving after wind? It occurs seven times in the book. Five of them occur directly after a declaration that it was hevel. The word that's been rendered striving is very often rendered Shepherding. It's the word for shepherd, to shepherd a flock. Now, if you're the shepherd and your sheep are like the wind, how easy is it to get your hands around them? And I think that that added phrase is giving clarity about what life is like. It's like shepherding wind. In much wisdom is much vexation. The more I know, the more I comprehend, the higher I get, the more frustrating it is because I realize that life doesn't always work out how I planned. And even this, I can't get my hands around everything that God is doing. The more wisdom, the more frustration, the more pain, the more vexing. Because he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. He's made everything beautiful in its time, and yet he's done so in a way that we can't find out what God is doing. For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his hevel life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him? We don't know. And the fact that we don't know whether we're going to lose our job, whether we're going to get struck by a tornado, whether our child is going to find the right man or the right woman, godly, we we don't know these things. Am I going to go in and Strike out on my presentation or am I going to succeed? We really don't know. Am I going to make it to school today? Those people, I bet one of them very likely was trying to get to church this morning and God had other plans. 
So they got into a head-on collision. Because we don't know what will come tomorrow, and yet God's in charge of it all. I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with a child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. That's what this book is about. I don't understand why God does things the way He does. But in that world, how should we respond? While we can know some truths, many realities under the sun make it wearisome at best, and the identification of many evils in the world all point to something that is painful, traumatic, frustrating. Here's some of the texts that I was talking about. I've seen everything that's done under the sun. Behold, all is hevel and a striving after wind. All of it is, I think, he's trying to get his hands around it. He's trying to shepherd it like wind, and he can't shepherd it. Then I considered all that my hands had done and all the toil that I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was enigmatic. It was like striving after wind. I, I, I can't get it. I can't understand why it all works this way. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. So I hated life because of what was done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is heaven and a striving after wind. Hated life. Is that okay theology? When, if, if you recognize the weightiness of this world, if by that what he's saying is, I long for something more than this. If this is it, we, we are to be pitied. Believe me, don't get too satisfied with this world. There's something more coming. And he's going to talk about it. I'll point to it next week. Ultimately, I hate this life. I hate that it's broken. I hate that the curse is so real. I hate that I, like Pastor Jason said this morning, I hate that I'm not growing in holiness fast enough. I hate it. I hate that jobs are lost and that cancer strikes and that car accidents come. I hate that I can't get my hands around why certain teams win and certain teams lose. Why my son succeeds or why my daughter doesn't. This is not the world that I would have planned, but how should I respond? Yeah. The question is, how autobiographical is this book in relation to Solomon's life? I think it's massively autobiographical. I think he has sought, if you read chapter 2, you'll see that he pinpoints himself as the greatest of kings in Jerusalem who had everything possible. And then he says, but what what was it all for? And then he looks at all the sins that he's done all the mistakes he's made. And he can't get his hands around why things have gone the way that they are. Even as the wisest man, I I think it's very autobiographical, and he's using his wisdom then to pass it on to us as an older man. And... And they're not, are they? They're not pointless, but, but, but key is that we can't understand the point. And I think that's his frustration. We can't understand. We can't understand. Yeah, I think the faith from a, from a perspective first of being a, kind of the existential life is meaningless. You know, make meaning where you will, but it's meaningless. That's that's the point from which God will be the face. And it strikes me that that's the that and the and the understanding of a personal God in this universe, the, the God of the Bible. Those are the only two uh, to me, the only two worldviews that make any sense whatsoever. And Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes have always struck me as uh, 
uh, the, the despair is exactly what you have in the existentialist meaningless world. And, and apart from a personal living God, we're stuck with that. That's it. And that's kind of the frame within which I see, I see Ecclesiastes. I don't know whether you think that's helpful or not. It's probably not. But, but that's how I view this thing is understandable and, and, and exciting and affirming and, and a, a book of great Turn in your Bibles to chapter 12. I'm going to build on the point that was just made. There is a... The root... Resh, Ion, Hay... I already said it's the root to shepherd. It shows up seven times, and five of them are in relation to Hevel explicitly. It's like shepherding wind. This, is, this, I think, is the key point of the book. For you and I living in this world, it's like shepherding wind. We can't get our hands around it. But then we read the only other instance of this root in this book. Same root. Capital S, only other time. For us in this world, trying to get our hands around what God is doing, it's like shepherding wind. But then it says, chapter 12, verse 11, The words of the wise are like goads, and nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. How do we respond rightly? in a world that for us is like shepherding wind. We pause, and we take our eyes off of our situation to the shepherd who's been doing all things from beginning to end. I think that there's an intentional statement here at the end of the book. He's called the shepherd in order to contrast, all of my life has been trying to shepherd, to be in control, and I can't be in control. And the book is saying, step back. We have a shepherd And we're going to see next week, he actually does things enigmatically so that we will fear him. It's actually going to say that explicitly. He does the things the way he does so that it will put us in a context of dependence. So that the only place we can go when we realize how out of control we are is to rest in the one who is in control. And it calls him the shepherd in order to contrast our inability to shepherd. We can't shepherd, but he can And even though we don't understand why he's doing it the way he is, trust him. The words of the wise are coming from one shepherd. He's the one in whom we put our hope. And just to throw this out, one shepherd shows up three times in the Bible. Ezekiel 34 God is the shepherd who has one shepherd, namely the Messiah. And John 10, where Jesus calls himself the one shepherd. And Ecclesiastes is setting us up for the one shepherd as the holder of our souls. It's beautiful. John 10, my sheep hear my voice. My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life. They will never perish. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. No one. That's the shepherd that we have. In a world that doesn't make sense, hear and follow the Good Shepherd. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, this this has been a big morning with lots of information, but I pray that hearts would be encouraged in your shepherding role in our lives, when we are out of control and cannot shepherd, our rock is set, nails firmly fixed, and a guiding hand by you moving us in the path that we should go. You are our rock. You are the all-wise God. Help us trust in your wisdom. We need your help. Help us fear you and follow you as you would have it, even though we can't understand all that's going on. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.
Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at bcsmn.org. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at deroshi-meyer.org. Proclaiming the Kingdom and Treasuring a God who Rules, Saves, and Satisfies through Covenant for His Glory in Christ.